Have you ever flushed anything down the toilet um, that you like wanted to keep? No, uh, but I did. <laughs> I did drop my sunglasses in the bowl once and um, in a public toilet. Mm. And I think I spent about seven minutes trying to work out whether I really wanted to recover them or not. <laughs> and in the end, I decided I did because I like two hundred dollar pair of sunnies, and I just could never wear them without feeling weird after that. <laughs> I did oh. wash them. I did um, recently drop my phone, my mobile phone. Oh, no. And the um, pass again to our studio. So if ever you use mine. Oh, thanks for telling me now. That's your shout for lunch later. (laughs) Welcome to the Tradies Business Show, helping you get off the tools and into true business ownership so you can spend more time doing the things that matter most. Now, here are your hosts, Warwick Bidwell and Michaela Clark. Welcome to the Tradies Business Show, listeners. Um, sorry if you're eating your lunch and we're talking about fishing things out of the loo, but uh, we're not talking to a plumber today, are we, Michaela? No. <laughs> so I don't know why the toilet humour, well, it's always toilet humour on the show. No, uh, because he's worked at a turd farm and I want to know what things... <laughs> Can you say pe- that? Can we say that? We don't have an explicit rating. Turd's not an explicit rating. Not in Australia, but, but g'day to our uh, US oh, listeners. Five of them. Hang on, no, there's seven now. Um, yeah, yeah, I want to know what people, there is a tie-in, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. what people go through shit to get out. Oh, so welcome to the show, Jared <laughs> Liddy from, uh, mate, oh, what is, is it Dynamic Business Partners? Is that what we're calling you? Dynamic Business Partners is my company name, yes. Hey, correct. hey, I got it right. So, uh, Jared was actually an electrician, um, but you worked high voltage and you worked at a sewage farm, mate. So, um... What what uh, what have you seen there, man? You've seen the underbelly of society, and that is the correct terminology for it. Most sewage systems are underground, and oh. uh, you would be surprised um, what is located at the end of your street or in your neighbourhood that you have no idea about. Um, <laughs> yeah, the pipes and the pump stations and uh, and all the gear that runs uh, once you push that little button on your toilet. Um, what happens to it after that? Not many people give any thought to. But there is a whole network of people um, who make sure that every time you push the button, it goes in the correct direction, and that's downhill. <laughs> I actually had a school yep. excursion to a water treatment plant, which was really a sewage at the time, so that was really interesting. <laughs> there you go. So what do people um, come and want to get out of the sewage? What have you seen people pick out? Uh, and look, it's mostly the people that, uh, that work there that, you know, once it's gone down the toilet, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody contacting um, Oh, yeah, a few times we've been on the hunt for diamond rings and false teeth and stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> Yuck. Because you, know, you wanted to put them back in your mouth. But, um, but yeah, there's a, there's a big campaign. I, I live in Brisbane uh, in, in Australia for all your overseas uh, listeners. And uh, there's a big campaign in Queensland at the moment about those flushable wipes, uh, how they're not so flushable and how they've created massive dramas in the sewage network. Um, in Queensland and, and across Australia by just creating massive blockages that just blow the pipes up. So, um, so yeah, at the other end, um, yeah, there, there's, this, there's a whole screening system that takes out all the bulk stuff before it gets down to the, the stuff that you can actually put back into a river or a water system. And those screens really, they, they, they catch everything. Sunglasses, as you said, Warwick. Uh, <laughs> I've got a 14-year-old daughter who's, uh, who's inclined to stick her phone in her back pocket and um, most phones that go down toilets uh, come out of girls' tight jeans um, <laughs> when they go to sit down. Uh, 
they don't flush very well, but so yeah, they're mostly retrievable. But, um, <laughs> mostly, uh, I'm, mostly retrievable. I'm sure the smaller phones of the good old days would would have easily gone down an S bend, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's horrific what you see at the other end, okay. and um, you get immune to it within a you know within a very short period of time, mind you. Everyone used to say. Uh, does it stink really bad when you go to work? And I go, yeah, for about the first five minutes on Monday, and then uh, then next Monday you go, geez, this place stinks, and you, you know, at five past eight you you don't know it anymore. So it's amazing what you get accustomed to. Mm, I wouldn't like to be amazed anyway. Uh, so, mate, yeah. uh, we're not going to spend the whole episode talking about poo and um, dropping you. things in the bowl. Obviously, you were an electrician, as we said. Um, you, you know, you come from a trade background. Give us, give us a bit of, uh, you know, if I met you in a bar, uh, I wouldn't be trying to pick you up, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I said, so who are you? What do you do? Uh, you know, give our listeners a bit of background, mate. Yeah, well, I uh, did my apprenticeship with the Brisbane City Council, which is one of the biggest city councils in the whole world, uh, geographically and stuff-wise. So we had a pretty diverse um, range of our apprenticeship. You were moved... Uh, probably eight times uh, you know it's sort of every six months you move to a new depot or a new department um unfortunately i was on the water sewage and supply side of things after i'd flipped the coin as to whether i wanted to be an electrician or a plumber and um my big sister said to me oh you wouldn't want to be a plumber you'll end up working with sewage all the time and toilets and then i get an apprenticeship <laughs> with the water sewage and supply department so it was pretty ironic uh in the end but um but brisbane city council have lots of different departments so we got to do some domestic stuff some commercial stuff, some, as you said, some high-voltage stuff, which is underground, mostly in Brisbane, not so much overhead with the council, uh, and also some commercial stuff. So it's a really good, diverse apprenticeship. Got to work with a whole lot of different guys and and people and organisations and um, and look at different management structures. And that's, I guess that's kind of where I really found my mix for working with people, not so much working with, uh, you know, being an electrician, but having to work with different groups of people over such a diverse period of time, it really taught you how to communicate well mm-hmm. and, um, and when to shut up, I think, is a pretty good, a pretty good lesson to learn when you're an apprentice. Mm. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, they get so, treated in a particular way, don't they, mate, our apprentices? Yeah, and look, you've got to be strong enough to, to know when you're going to have to um, put up with that and know when you don't have to put up with it. And, um, like, you know, like I'm 43, 44 now, so... I was back in an era then when, um, you know, when there was no such thing as workplace bullying and there was very little OH&S. Um, I started off uh, at one of the biggest sewer treatment plants in the country at Luggage Point in Brisbane and, and we used to weld and grind and, and cut stuff on top of our big digester plants and, and by the end of my apprenticeship we had zinc-proof, uh, zinc-coated you know, spark-proof tools because you weren't allowed to even make a spark up there. I was like, two years ago I was using an oxy-torch up here. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, a lot. We watched a lot of that change come in um, when you know responsibilities changed and management changed and governance and all that stuff, which was really hard to understand as a you know as a young fella. Um, but it was all trickling down from overhead, and you just had to um, you just had to put up with it. So yeah, I've watched a lot of industry change over the time, and um, it's been good fun and been a great education. So um, from the end of my apprenticeship, I I did a six month just uh, a maintenance contract with the council and then I went overseas for three nearly four years traveled around didn't pick up my tools once it was great and uh, went to a whole bunch of different countries about 30 different countries and traveled extensively and and had a great time but I was lucky enough to live in Canada for a while and uh, and work for a really big ski resort in Whistler and that was where I got really introduced to customer service and the and a really high level of customer service where 
over there, especially in a big resort, the customer's always right. You're always doing everything to try and please them. And, um, and yeah, and I got trained by some great people over there, which really built upon this lesson that I'd learned as an apprentice when, you know, how to, how to deal with lots of different groups of people and, mm. and, um, and communicate across a broad spectrum. So it was a really great um, time. To travel and and especially you know being in countries where you don't speak the language and um, and having to learn how to get your message across and, and get what you need to done, so uh, a great time a great time overseas, really met a heap of different people and still got friends now that I communicate with that I I lived with and met whilst I travelled, and then came home and worked for a really big the biggest sort of uh, domestic electrician in Brisbane uh, Neil Fallon electrical and and I was lucky enough to. Uh, to know Neil and his son Matt, who uh, who really took me under my, under their wing when I got back from uh, from my travels, and I hadn't been on the tools for nearly four years. And um, yeah, there was a great leading hand there, uh, Sean, a bloke who who really guided me through relearning what I had forgotten in four years, and uh, and taught me some hard lessons as well. But um, but also really nurtured this uh, this idea of customer service, and and Neil's business was a really big business at the time. And uh, and he had owned that business from scratch, and he had customers that they had uh, they had rescued after the '73 floods, I think, in Brisbane. Um, you know, most of Brisbane city was was underwater. Whole of the south side, most of the north side, and uh, all the electricians in town just got together and said, "Listen, we just don't have any work unless we get these guys back up and running." And and they spent months just scrubbing mud out of people's switchboards and getting the power back on all for free because there was just nothing else for them to do. You know, if it wasn't done, there wasn't any clients for them. So they had loyal customers that, that they had serviced for 20 and 30 years who we would never consider using anybody else. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to, to learn under Neil and uh, a few of the other guys there about um, what it is really like to, you know, to nurture customers for a long period of time and show them you know, the, the respect and the return that they had shown them over years. So it was a really great education um, to, learn from, uh, to learn from them and build my career as a not just an electrician, but also as a as a service manager, and um, and understanding how to deal with customers and then deal with guys and put the right guys on the right jobs and stuff like that. So uh, it was really really important time for me. Uh, three years that I spent with Neil. So what were some of these key um, customer service lessons that you've learnt over this time? Oh, look, I think um, the most important one would be that the customers. The customer's not always right, but you always have to make sure that you listen to them. So the most important thing you can do is is listen to what they to what they they're going to tell you. Um, so when you go, and this is probably the most valuable lesson I've, I've ever learned, and I learned this from Neil himself. And he said, when you go into someone's house uh, or business or wherever it is you're there to do, um, you're only there for one of two reasons, and that is one, you're the expert, so they've come in to ask your opinion on something, or two is that they don't know what they need and they're, and you're there to tell them uh, what they need. Um, so the conversation is only going to go one of two ways. So they don't know what they want and they're asking for your help or they know exactly what they want and they're waiting for you to do it for them. So he said, you've got to shut up and wait until you know which path to go down. So if, they're, if you're there to be the expert, be the expert. And if they already know what they want, then you just need to wait and listen for that and then go along that path. Because quite often you deal with somebody and you haven't even finished saying what you want, and they're telling you what they can do for you, and, um, and they're and they're wrong or out of line. So that the key for me was shut up and wait until you know what situation you're in, 
and then deal with that situation that's in front of you. And, and that served me really, really well over the last 20 years um, because when people want you to be the expert, that's what they're expecting from you, so be the expert. But also if they know what they want, then uh, then deal with that as it may be. And some people have unrealistic expectations. They want something that's impossible, never been done or never been done in your lifetime and you need to gently explain that to them <laughs> that you can explore that path but it may not be possible. Um, and that's just the way it goes when you're trying to in any service industry, I think. And so Neil Fallon's a, quite a large electrical company up here. So what were some other the key learnings you saw from running a large, successful uh, trade business? Yeah, um, <clears throat> their motto was that they can always be there. So they always had enough guys uh, on the road um, to, if there was a drama, then they could always get someone there in a day, you know, within, within that sort of eight-hour period. Now, they couldn't always complete the project, but, you know, most of the time what someone's drama is to them is not a drama to you. You know, it's a simple fix or it's a solution or it is a big drama and once you get there and assess the situation, you can always schedule it for a more appropriate time. So they were big enough to say yes, um, but they were also wise enough to market to a very specific target market. So we um, didn't really do a lot of industrial and commercial work when I was there and that grew over time. Um, now they're well, I should probably put in there that Neil has since sold the business. They're continuing to use his name and they've been bought by a really big company and uh, and they've branched out to plumbing and electrical and solar and water tanks and all that sort of stuff. A really smart move for that company because it had such great brand awareness here in Brisbane and Queensland. Um, but at the time, you know, we had a really specific target market so we were experts at what we did, white goods. Um, they also owned a company that did most of the TV aerial installation work before digital TV came in. Um, white goods and domestic electrical stuff and we were just, you know, we were good, we were fast and um, we could get there today. But also, uh, they certainly weren't the cheapest. That's one of the things that a lot of the criticism was around. But people weren't interested in the price when they were interested in the service and that was one thing that Neil always stuck to was that he knew um, that if we could be there today, we're going to be better than the guy that can't be there till next week and we always turned up. That was the thing, we always turned up. Yeah, it's interesting, um, a couple of things there. Like We talk on the show a lot about niching and the mm-hmm. importance of it, and particularly people starting out think they have to be, you know, one thing for every everyone, sure. you know, because they've got to get customers in the door. But, you know, you're going to get known quicker and have a longer-term business if you can really exceed in a certain niche and be known for that. So it's yeah. good to see that... You know, these businesses are going down that path where they, they did niche and clearly define their target market. And look, I would suggest that to everybody, that trying to be all things to everyone is a, just a recipe for disaster. Um, find out what you're really good at. Prove that you're really good at it to your market. Um, and then once your reputation starts to build your client base, um, it's a different sort of business that you have there when, when you're – a lot of tradies, and, and I speak to tradies all the time, um, say that they don't do any marketing, all their work is referral work. And that's all well and good when it's flowing in, but when it's not flowing in, it's a really slow process to try and crank up some sort of marketing to get some work in the door. So one of the things I deal with my clients around is saying, well, if you know you're busy in 10 months of the year, you need to make 12 months worth of money in that 10 months so you don't have to panic in the times that you're quiet. So if you can focus your KPIs on making all the money you need to live in a year in twelve, in 10 months or 9 months or whatever your busy period is, um, great, go ahead and do that with a referral-only based marketing campaign. But if you can't, 
then you need to do some marketing and you need to find out what works for you and your niche and your client base and you need to do it. You can't sit around talking about it or thinking about it. Um, you need to go out and do it. It only takes one cycle to prove whether you can or you can't, right? So, yeah. And I know you also talked there about knowing your value. Like he knew he was more expensive, but he knew his level of service and his guarantee worked and he stood by that. And I think that's something a lot of tradies do lack. They get so concerned with winning the job and being the cheapest, mm-hmm. which, you know, often they can lose money on a job or have to cut corners, yeah. which affects them long term. So it's really knowing your value and sticking to that value where you can. Correct. And look, one of the one of the smartest things uh, Neil also did was we always got paid. So we um, got paid on the day for every job. And, we, and they really specialised in, in uh, domestic stuff. But the ladies in the office who, who ran the office, they knew every time a job was booked, they would say to the customer, and how will you be paying for that today? And the customer would inevitably say, oh, you mean you're not going to leave an account with me? And they would say, no, we are not going to leave an account with you. You can either pay cash or check, or you can use credit card. So which one would you prefer to use? And we'll put it in our system here so our guy knows. So when I went out onto site to do the job, I'd completed the job and I'd sit in my van and I'd do all my paperwork, including all the stock that I'd used and uh, all my labor and all my hours and all my bits and bobs. And then I'd go back into the customer and I'd give them the account and they'd say, oh, I thought you were going to leave an account with me. And I would say, no, you didn't because you spoke to what's the name on the phone and she told you you were going to have to pay today and they would never Orc. They would always pay. And they just knew that. We just had such a good system that we stuck to all the time. And bear in mind, this was before EFT and, and stuff like that. So there's lots of different ways to get paid now, but a lot of guys I've dealt with have so much outstanding debtors that that's just crushing their business because they're too polite or they're too generous or they're not strong enough to say, no, that's how I do business. Yep. And there just seems to be this massive thing about asking for money that they've done the work for. It's you know, the work's been performed, they've uh, used materials, they've paid wages, and they feel bad about asking for the money. And uh, I know that comes back to the self-value thing, but, you know, it really is something that, uh, that you know, we need to get over that as business owners in general, not just as tradies. Uh, Correct. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that comes back to a bit of training uh, when you're young. And, like, look, one of the things that, that, that Neil T. Fallon had in common with a lot of other great companies that I've worked with is that they have a, they had a really good system to follow. And if you didn't follow the system, then you weren't part of the team. So that was how I was trained by him and his crew. And that was, there was just no two ways about it. So I didn't have an option to ask for the money. There wasn't a, and you know, <laughs> it just wasn't an option. That was how you did it. Hmm. And I think a lot of guys now don't go through that process of actually coming up with a system and documenting that system and following through with it and, and, and training their guys on it or girls yeah. around this is this there's just a you know there's no question about it this is a non-negotiable this is how we do business and and one thing we did was train when I worked for Fallon's was we trained our customer around that too and once the customer understood it there wasn't any problems yep so Jared uh, what was behind your decision to leave the industry mate and and um I guess, transition into what you're doing now, which is, uh, well, same as me, essentially, mate. You're a business coach. Um, yeah. yeah. What was behind that, mate? Oh, look, I um, I had just effectively sort of met the woman that I knew that I was going to marry, and uh, um, we'd bought a house together, and uh, I thought, there's got to be more to life than climbing under people's floors and in their roofs, space. Um, <laughs> And I look, a lot of the time, the work I was doing, 
uh, at Fallon's at the time was more project management stuff and, and I had suggested to them that maybe that was a full-time role that I could do, um, was get off the tools and get out of my one-ton kind of van with three-ton of gear in it, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and get into something a bit different and get around and, and sort of run um, the operation of the, of the guys out on the street. Um, at the time, they didn't didn't think that there was much merit in that and that really pushed me down a path to think, well, maybe I'm always going to be uh, here and there's nowhere to move up in this company and this organization. So I went and studied for a year. I went back to college and, and studied industrial lighting and uh, I really wanted to get into a sales role. So um, I figured most of my mates that were making the most amount of money and seemed to have a, a, you know, a better future, a better outlook, uh, were all in sales of some sort. So uh, I knew that I had a really good um, base in customer service um, and I was really good with people and one of the best, uh, I, I guess, critiques I've ever had in my life was getting called into Neil's office and he said, you need to tell me what you're doing differently because you're the only guy on our crew that people ring up for and ask for by name. And uh, we had 14 guys on the road, probably a bunch of apprentices and, and that was a real shock to me. Um, that he'd pulled me aside to say that. And, and he said, so tell me what you're doing. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he said, well, go away and find out and come back and we'll tell everybody else to do it. And, uh, and of course, we all know it's not that simple. Um, there was a whole lot of factors in that and, and all my travel and the different jobs I'd had had, had taught me that skill. Um, and you can't teach that to some people. So I knew that I wanted to do something different. I went and studied industrial lighting for a year and then I got a lead into uh, another company that was just starting here in Brisbane called EcoSol. And they were a stormwater filtration device company. And with my background with water sewage and supply uh, with Brisbane City Council, I applied for a project manager's job with them, which I was not even remotely accredited for, right? I just thought I'd just chuck my hat in the ring. Um, they met me, said, mate, you, you're dreaming if you think you could do this job. And I said, yeah, I know, but I'm just, you know, I'm getting out there trying to find something new to do. And, um, and they said, oh, good on you, but, you know, this is just not for you. And then about three months later, they, um, they rang me back and said, listen, uh, you applied for this job, which you weren't suited for, but we've got a sales job, a salesman's job, if you'd like to come and have a chat to us about it. Um, so I went in and met with them and they said, we'd like to give you a shot at this job. And I said, oh, you know, I'm an electrician by trade. I'm not really, you know, uh, I'm not really this. And they said, oh, look, we, we can teach you everything you need to know about this product and this industry. Um, and we think you can learn it pretty quickly. And, um, and they gave me a shot. So I started off as a sales rep for those guys. And, uh, and the bloke that they did hire as the project manager's job, a, a great bloke called Greg O'Sullivan, who lives here in Brizzy and owns a good construction company now, he, uh, he was a plumber by trade and took me under his wing again. And he was probably my real second mentor um, and taught me an enormous amount about the industry and about how uh, construction works as opposed to just being, you know, in the electrical side of things, but how construction works. And, um, and yeah, really went on to a, a great career with those guys in that uh, after about a year, I became the Queensland manager um, to run the Queensland office. And it was at that time that uh, I was lucky enough, my sister, my younger sister, had just been approached by a big coaching firm and had started her business coaching career. So when I got this job as, um, as a Queensland manager, I said to her, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing and you want to try some of that coaching business out on me. And um, and she said, yeah, because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing either. So, <laughs> Sounds like so, most business coaches. So right? let's have a crack. Ooh. And uh, Anyway, so over the next 18 months, um, she really 
pointed me in the right direction around uh, how to set up systems and how to um, uh, build a model that could be replicated. And, uh, and the first step in that was reading Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth. And um, that was the very first foray I'd ever had into sort of personal development, business management, that sort of stuff. And that book opened my eyes dramatically to a whole new world that, um, that I had never uh, been approached by or never been in. But also I, I really assimilated with it. I'm a, my wife would probably say I'm fairly anal. I'm pretty obsessive compulsive. Um, and so having a really good system to follow uh, really worked for me. And so when I read that book a couple of times and started to build my model out of it, and I sat down with my, my coach at the time and said, this is what I got out of it. And she said, really? I don't get that out of that at all. <laughs> and uh, Because you get what you need to get out of it, I think. And, and everyone I've ever spoken to who's read that book, and I've given that book to hundreds of people, they all get whatever they need to get out of it. And uh, it's whatever they needed at the time. And, and so we built a model uh, in the Queensland office that outstripped the rest of the country put together in that company. And so we outsold everybody else put together and we were really the backbone of that company. And so um, in another 12 or 18 months, I moved up to being national sales and marketing manager. Um, but once again, I found that there wasn't anywhere else to go in that business and that, and that my model was different to the, uh, the model that they were using above me. And um, it, really didn't, um, it really didn't match what I had learned and, and been taught over the, sort of the previous couple of years. So we agreed to go our separate ways. And uh, which was lucky because if I hadn't agreed to, I would have been going my separate way anyway. Um, so, uh, so they took me on, then taught me a whole bunch of stuff, and then I went on to uh, on to coaching after that. So, fast forward a bunch of years, mate. How, how long have you been business coaching, Jared? Uh, this will be thirteenth or fourteenth year now. I think I started in two thousand and three. So, um, so yeah, this is is my thirteenth year. Cool, mate. And so what do you see are the key drivers for successful small business and particularly those that uh, are in this building construction area? Look, I think you've got to get really clear on what you want to get out of it at the other end. And um, if you're not working towards a specific goal, and whether that be a financial goal or a time-based goal or, or a commercial-type goal, then it's really hard to motivate yourself to do the things that you have to do, not the things that you want to do. And look, everybody hears all the stories about companies that go broke and leave massive debtors and projects unfinished and, and stuff like that. A lot of that is based around always saying yes to everything um, and, and you know, not getting paid on time. And, and we, we all know that the construction industry is pretty ruthless and, and especially the bigger end of town and that you don't get a say, you just have to, you know, fit in with the crew. But you need to be really clear on what you want to get out of it. And if you can define what your outcome is, um, then it's much easier to build a platform in front of it to deliver that. And I think a lot of guys, and uh, especially tradies, often, you, you know, when I got first recruited into coaching, it was because they didn't have any coaches in their company that were from a blue-collar background. And they said, we really want to tap into this market. Anyway, we knew within about 12 months that you just can't tell a tradie anything. They bloody know everything already. So you've got to, you've got to realize uh, um, what your limitations are and, and get some help in the areas that you best need help. So business coaching has gone through some interesting phases uh, in its history, particularly here in Australia, but certainly globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, you know, the industry itself has, has reached a stage of maturity where I think, you know, lots of people know of, Business coaches, they've either had one, they know someone who's had one, they've read a media story about 
a coach or, you know, mm-hmm. probably lots of bad experiences, but then there's lots of good experiences like any industry. Yeah. Uh, what, what's been some of your own challenges, I guess, Jared, in terms of taking yourself to market as a coach and what's been some of the, I guess, the, the well-received um, attitudes from business owners and perhaps some of the flip side of that, the negative stuff? Sure. And look, I think any coach in any industry, whether it's a sporting coach or a business coach or, or whatever, is always judged by the results that they get with their clients. So um, the number one thing you need to realize is what is your client trying to achieve? Um, and for me, the biggest challenge is often when I sit down with people, they haven't ever defined that. So once we can define that, then we can put some metrics behind it to say whether uh, it's doable or not. And Look, I think if you go and read any success story of any business owner, they have never done it on their own. Um, they've always had somebody there to keep them accountable or to point them in the right direction or to give them feedback or whatever they can, you know, whatever uh, they need at the time. As a business coach, a lot of the, the main component that I provide is accountability. So it's a, a realistic gut check sometimes to, to where people want to be, especially when you own your own business. It's hard to be accountable to somebody um, because you don't have to be. I guess that's the number one reason is you don't have to be. You're the boss, so you make the decisions whether good or bad and you live with them good or bad and you share them good or bad. (laughs) And and a lot of people, like gamblers, you never hear of their losses. You only hear of their big wins. A lot of people are losing a lot of the time and it gets to the point where they have to decide whether they want to stay in business or not stay in business. And that's a really big emotional decision to make for a lot of people because everyone's going to know. I guess that's the hardest part is that if you had your own business now or in the past or for a year or a couple of years and now you work for someone else, a lot of the fear is people think that you've failed and that you, well, you think that people think that you failed. That's the biggest hardest part and that's why a lot of business owners chuck heaps of good money after bad money trying to stay afloat because their ego is telling them, that if they quit, everyone's going to know they quit and that means they failed and then they're not as good or bad or beautiful or, or smart or whatever they thought they were going to be by owning their own business. And that's a that's just a dumb way to work. You know, you've got to have somebody who can keep you accountable and keeping you accountable to a set of metrics that are going to prove to you that you're doing the right thing. So if you were trying to lose weight and you're working with a personal trainer or or a, a dietitian, or or any of the big companies we know that help people lose weight, and you weren't losing weight, you were actually gaining weight. It would be fairly obvious that that program's not working for you. Is that fair to say? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's fair to say, right? Because the metrics have got to support the outcome, the the, the end goal. So, as a business coach, I've got to say, oh, okay, well, I know I need to work with X amount of businesses at any given time for me to just break even, right? To pay my bills and send my kids to school and and never have to say to my wife. I can't afford that or we can't afford that because that's the worst thing that a bloke has to say when he thinks of himself as a provider is that I can't provide. So if you know that base metric is I pay my taxes and I pay my bills and I clear my credit cards every month and that number equals X. Okay, well, there's a good number to start with. Most people don't even know the number. There's one number that drives most businesses, I believe, and when I scratch across the surface of any business, we can identify what that number is and that number might be how many times the phone rings, how many times the email pings, how many times I get out and knock on people's doors or whatever it is that's going to drive your entire business and it can come back to one number. Mm. Once we identify what that one number is, then we can put the systems in place to make sure that number delivers um, 
and do the work in the background and make sure that it's going to continue to do it. Because once we break that number down, there's usually a series of things that are required. And people haven't gone to that much depth in their business. And the classic line is, all my work comes from referrals. Yeah. So <laughs> when you hear that, you go, okay, well, I bet you don't know where your number is. Oh, yeah, my number is how many referrals I get per month. You go, great, well, how many do you get? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> they don't, they've, never even, they've never even measured it, right? They don't know what their break-even is or they don't know what their, their you know, those, those basic metrics are in their business to, uh, to stay afloat. And you don't find out until it's too late, until you can't pay your bill and you go, oh, what? And the tax department says, actually, you owe me 60 grand and how are you going to do that? And you go, I don't know. And they say, well, we'll give you a wind-up notice, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're only going to be nice to you once. That's the thing, right? And uh, not, not twice. So, yeah, once you find out what those metrics are, then you can decide whether you want to stay in business or not because, you know, if you cut hair and you know how many people's hair you've got to cut every week or every month, then you're onto a good thing. That's the same as if you're a plumber or electrician or a brickie. There should be a metric that tells you that you're on the right path. So, Jared, what's some of the biggest, uh, I guess, lessons that you've had to teach business owners or you've been fortunate enough perhaps to teach business owners over the years, you know, those those really impactful things that, uh, I mean, in my experience, often it's the simple things that can have the greatest impact. But what, what about you personally, professionally, mate? Like what's what's some of those for you? Oh, certainly the, the number one one is know your numbers. So you've got to, you just got to know your numbers. Um, you've got to know how much your lifestyle costs, the lifestyle that you want to live. And then you've got to add that to your business costs and then you've got to say, well, there's the number that I need to make. And if I can't make that um, every month or every quarter, then I've really got to reconsider mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Um, a lot of people don't understand the long-term effects of going broke. Um, so if you're going to go into business and it's, and it's not going to work and you can't make it work, well, then the sooner you get out, the better. So the hardest lesson I've had to teach people is you should get out of business. You are not cut out for this. You don't have the right... Um, mentality or education or bits and bobs, whatever it is, confidence, you don't have it. And the sooner you shut this thing down and go work for someone else, then the better it's going to be for you. So I've worked with a lot of people who have quit their $100,000 a year job to start a business and are lucky to earn 50 grand. And, you know, you just go, well, why are you doing this? Oh, well, it's a lifestyle choice. So, well, yeah, but it's not working for you, you know. So when you're the business owner, you have the most amount of risk in your life, right, when you're a business owner. So you should also inversely have the most amount of reward. And that's how I measure a lot of success with my clients is to say, well, hang on, you've got all this on the line. What's your reward for that? And if your reward is, you know, four days holiday a year and going prematurely gray and now you're obese, well, that's not a really good good reward, right? You know, if your relationship is on the rocks because you're always working or you never, you haven't been to one school athletics carnival well, maybe your priorities aren't correct. And uh, I'm not saying that having a job would, would be much different, but it might take away a whole bunch of the precursors that lead to a really bad situation you know, in five or ten years' time, which might be health-related, which might be financially related or relationship-related, which they're not thinking about now because they're too busy worrying about their business. Mm. So the hardest lesson is, are you cut out for it? Um, and then the easiest lesson is making the decision after you've realized <laughs> You are or you aren't, right? Because if you're going to go all in, well, go all in, you know, uh, but go all in with 100% commitment to it. That's what all in means. Um, and give yourself a timeline. One of my most successful, I guess, 
uh, end points with a client was his wife right from the beginning said, we're going to put a time on. You've got a really good job now. You want to go and try this thing because you think there's something in it. She said, what's a timeline that we can work on? Two years, we agreed to two years was the timeline. At that two-year point, she said on the day, it's not working. You need to shut this thing down. Your children need a dad and your wife needs a husband and you need to stop fooling yourself that this thing isn't working. And it wasn't working and he was determined to keep going. And he said on that day, you're right, we've gone to our timeline. It hasn't worked, so I'm going to go back to my career. And he did and he was happy that he did, but he was also happy that he gave it a shot because a lot of people don't. You know, and they always regret it and they always regret, oh, you know, and they're living in this future loop that my life would have been better if and they never can resolve that and then there's resentment. But he gave it a shot and she gave him permission to to give it a shot. It didn't work and they honoured their agreement, you know, and that was a really great result for both of them. I mean, I've worked with companies that uh, the owner has gone on to have the company fully under management, um, now gets to play in the business in the bit that they truly love and and that's the thing I think a lot of business owners miss out on is when they start a business, they start doing something that they really enjoy doing like building or being an electrician or being a plumber or whatever and as their business grows, they move further and further away from the bit that they love doing in the first place and so now they've spent all their time in the office doing paperwork or bookwork or whatever, they hate all that. <laughs> they've never, they never wanted to do that and they move further and further away from it, just getting more and more resentful. Um, so, yeah, I've worked with some great business owners who have been able to go back and do the bit that they love in their business and their business has thrived because of it, because the systems are in place, the people are in place, uh, the money's coming in and now they can enjoy either their wealth or they can enjoy doing what they like to do. And one thing I've learned from tradies is they're not real good at doing nothing. <laughs> They've got to be doing something and uh, sometimes that something isn't, uh, isn't productive for the business. So true. Yeah. So, um one thing we love to ask our tradies is if you have a thousand tra- – sorry, not ask our tradies, ask our guests. Mm-hmm. Idiot. Well, he happens to be a trade. Well, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Do you ever uh, stop being a tradie? Like if you leave the trade, does it oh, – You know what? It's it's really nice to go and do a little love job every now and again for somebody. <laughs> you know, my mum still tells all her friends that I'll fix stuff for them and, um, you know, and doing little bits and bobs around the house. I think it's uh, – you know, I don't think you ever really hang up your tool belt um, and it's nice to – it's nice to have a tinker every now and again, um, but often enough you go, oh, look, I've had enough of that. <laughs> so you never stop the mentality of knowing better than everybody else and wanting to do it better, I think. Um, especially I was at Bunnings on the weekend and this guy was standing in the electrical department and he didn't have a clue what he was doing and I was like, just walk away, Jared, just walk away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I did. I was pretty proud. I didn't even have a sausage. I walked out of there and missed out on a sausage and bread. Jeez, mate. Wow. That's impressive That's stuff. Right. So, so if you had a thousand uh, tradies in the room, what would be the one piece of advice that you'd like to give them about growing their business? Oh, the first thing I'd tell them is know why you're doing what you're doing, right? So have an end point, say working towards something, um, you know, whether it be some sort of – look, a financial goal is really easy one to measure. That's the thing I, I tell all of my clients is that I can't guess whether you're happy or not. You can tell me whether you are, but I can't measure that. But I can look in your bank account if there's heaps of money in there and I can look at if you only work six months of the year because you had the other six months on the back of your nice Riviera boat that you bought last year. Well, I can measure that, right? So have some measurable KPIs that you can keep an eye on but you're also kept accountable to. So I'd, ha- I'd definitely have someone that you're accountable to, whether it be a coach or a partner or, or, or somebody, um, 
definitely have someone you're accountable to and definitely have some measurable KPIs that you're responsible for. Cool, mate. There's uh, <laughs> business coaching 101. It's just busted down to two simple things. I like it. Um, mate, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Always great to chat to, well, real tradies, but um, always interesting to, to hear from tradies like yourself, mate, who have transitioned into some other role. And uh, for you, you know, you, you've sort of jumped on the other side of the desk to work with uh, business owners um, as a mentor and a coach. And, and I know you've you've received a bunch of awards in your 13 years, mate, and you've, you've achieved some some uh, pretty amazing things with clients as well. So um, great to hear from you, mate, and thanks for your time on the show today. Oh, look, thanks so much for having me, and uh, I wish you guys all the best. And, uh, and you know, anything that we can do to make those guys that are, are building this country of ours out there a little better off, I'm right behind. And how can they uh, people find out more about you if they're interested in knowing more about uh, the GRAD, as <laughs> Warwick called you? Yeah, right. Um, uh, you can uh, look me up. Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and um, and Facebook, I've got a Facebook page called Business Coaching Brisbane. Um, dynamicbusinesspartners.com.au is my website. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to look me up, send me a note. Happy to have a chat. Awesome, mate. Well, right. thanks again, and uh, all the best with the recovery of that uh, that knee, mate. I can't wait to kick your backside at CrossFit. Yeah, well, good luck with that. <laughs> thanks, Jared. Thanks, mate. Ta-da. So there you go, Jared. Dynamic business partners, former tradie, best advice was not the same as Duncan's recently of <laughs> don't actually become a tradie. But uh, yeah, it, I always like hearing from uh, people who have been a tradie and then moved on to something else, whether it's actually working as an employee or um, going into a d- completely different business. And uh, I've known Jared for a bunch of years and I know he's worked with lots and lots of business owners. So I liked his uh, you know quick summation at the end there about you know the key things to actually succeeding in business, about knowing your numbers and connecting the, the whole business activity to something meaningful. Yeah, and it's good to hear from someone that knows the demands of the job on the trade as well as from a business perspective and, and how to match those two together and what really they should focus on. Yep, so if you listened to that and thought, you know what, it's time I got someone to help me with my staff, you know, get an outside perspective, maybe get some of that accountability that Jared was talking about that really we can't give ourselves because we can convince ourselves of everything and anything. Uh, one simple way to do that would be to go and check out the Tradies Business Toolkit. So uh, Michaela and I have created this uh, toolkit, there's accountability, there's you know templates, all sorts of support. We're, we're building more and more value into that as we speak and uh, we'll actually be doing a bit of a relaunch in the, the not too it's distant It's going to be future. new and improved. Mm. Probably by the time I'm hoping this goes all very close, but we are actually having a, another level, mm. um, which is a mastermind level, which really focuses on that accountability and mentoring. Mm. Uh, so make sure to check that out at Tradies Business show show slash com com slash toolkit yep so uh but if you just head to the tradiesbusinessshow.com website you'll find all the links there to uh the mastermind the toolkit our 99 free marketing tips but you really need to be thinking about getting somebody outside your business to create that accountability and give you some objective feedback and uh, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money so um you know carton a beer a month uh and you can get us in your corner So um, anyway, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Until our next mind-blowing episode, take care and hooroo. You've been listening to The Tradies Business Show with Warwick Bidwell and Michaela Clark. 
Want to get off the tools and into true business ownership? Find out how at tradiesbusinessshow.com.